us, why don't you pray for me this morning? Oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And Heavenly Father, even now, I'm so grateful for your steadfast love and faithfulness, a love that uh, endures, a love that is not based upon us, a love not based upon uh, our ability to love you back, but uh, a love that is steadfast and enduring because you have secured it in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that glorious truth that you have accepted us and drawn a people unto yourself by your own power and your own might, Lord. Thank you for this amazing grace. And Heavenly Father, as we enter into the preaching moment, I do ask that because we are your people, that you will give us supernatural clarity, insight, and discernment by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please pour out your Holy Spirit in a special and unique way this morning that you would uh, refresh and renew us, that you would convict us of sin, that we would be delivered, and that we would be uh, the salt and, and the light that you have called us to be in this world. And even now, dear God, thank you for your steadfast and enduring love because even in the midst of much heartbreak, suffering, anxiety, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are faithful. And this morning, dear God, I just lift up your people. May you produce a humility within us that seeks to serve others more than we are served ourselves. Please raise up your church right now, dear God, to do awesome and mighty things because of our love for you and for your kingdom purposes. But even now, oh God, I ask that you would open up your word in a, in a way that will give us the, the proper insight that we need in order to be effective tools for you. May your word resonate within our hearts this morning, dear God. I ask that you would have mercy upon me that you would give me the precision and the clarity, the liberty and the freedom to preach your word. And Father, right now, I ask that your spirit would be heavy upon the one who has been rejecting you, that they would repent and turn towards you. We do love you and thank you for this extraordinary privilege. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, beloved, as a Predominantly an historic African-American church, the events that have been taking place within our nation hit very close to home. Um, racism has once again reared its ugly head, and, um, and new life has been given to a conversation some 400 years in the making. I don't know about you, but I personally, I've been on an emotional roller coaster. But yet, even in the midst, I know and I trust and believe and have experienced God's faithfulness. And I pray that you have too. So even as we even begin to consider all that's been going on and uh, racial injustice, I just want to make one thing clear, even as we like 
think about this deeply. Um, when it comes to racial injustice, there is no both sides to the matter. There's only right and wrong. And as the people of God, we have to seek to be right, not because everyone else says we should be right, but we want to be right because it, uh, of what God has already declared to us through his word and because we want to be faithful to his desires. Because when we look at scripture, the truth of the gospel does not cower to racism, but specifically the gospel directly confronts racism. And as the people of God, the, the church, although we're, we're listening to see what the world is saying, I just want us to, uh, to pause because I think it would be fitting for us to listen to what God has to say. I want us to return to a uh, text this morning that we had the privilege of going over uh, some three years ago as we were marching through the book of Galatians. And we came to Galatians, the second chapter, and it was just so evident what God was speaking to us at that moment of how he hates racism and how it brings disunity to the body of Christ and all those around. So today I want to return to that text in Galatians 2, and uh, I kind of want to bring together a summary of those three sermons that we took at that time. Uh, So hold on as we dig into Uh, Galatians, the second chapter this morning. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians, the second chapter. And as we uh, look at the truth of God's word, uh, may his truth resonate uh, resonate and and ring deeply within our hearts today. Uh, Galatians, the second chapter, beginning with verse one, I'm going to read the entire chapter. Uh, But we'll be focusing on particular verses this morning. This is the word of God. Please hear the voice of Christ. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before a certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May the Lord a blessing to the reading of this word. Our subject for this morning uh, in this text is, what does God say about racism? We're hearing about what everyone else has to say, but, but I believe and I know that God has something to say to us this morning. What does God have to say about racism? You know, this is important because here in America, we understand racial inequality has been part of the fabric uh, of the DNA of, of who America is, even ever since uh, the arrival of African slaves in Jamestown in 1619. Racism has uh, been uh, a part of history as we even look back to uh, important moments in history that define America as to who she would be. And America's original sin continued to, per, uh, uh, to perpetuate In its Dred Scott decision of uh, 1857, the Supreme Court ruled that the U.S. Constitution uh, uh, was not meant to include uh, African Americans as citizens. Therefore, they weren't to receive the rights under the Constitution, whether they were enslaved or free. Soon after uh, the Civil War ended in 1865, we see southern states begin to implement these black law codes that enforced uh, unjust uh, segregation and restricted the rights of those who were recently emancipated. As a matter of fact, in 1869, the Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation was constitutional, paving the way for those heinous Jim Crow laws that permeated and pervaded the South. 1869, you know it wasn't until 1964 that uh, when President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law that there was actually legislation put in place prohibiting discrimination of all kinds based on race, color, religion, or national origin. 
1964. And some thought in, in, in 1964, uh, the struggle for equality had ended some 345 years after Jamestown, yet here we are today. You know, if we're just brutally honest, we all know deep down that there is an institutionalized ideology in America that repudiates blackness, relegating those with generous amounts of melanin to a second-class status. Yet, even as we struggle with that and we wrestle with that and we fight against that, but because our weapons of warfare are not carnal, our theology must be the foundation from, from where our, our actions flow. A theology that is so fully dependent upon God in order to, to be your foundation and your structure, in order that you would go out knowing who, who you belong to in order to accomplish God's purpose in this world. Psalm 118, well, I'm sorry, Psalm 146, verses 3 through 5. The psalmist says, put not your trust in princes. In a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. See, ultimately, we do look for uh, uh, human beings and mankind to do what uh, is right and what they're supposed to do. But, but ultimately, our, 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 our eternal hope cannot be in man because if our hope is in man, he will fail every single time, bringing more discouragement or frustration. But as the people of God, our ultimate hope is in God. And from that foundation, we move into this culture, knowing that the victory has already been secured by Christ Jesus. When we look at scripture, racism can only be eradicated by the blood of Jesus Christ. King Jesus will crush the vile villain of racism, and we will see the saints of all tribes and, and peoples and languages standing before the throne of the Lamb with their white robes, holding their palm branches, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who, sit, who sits on the throne. Worthy is the Lamb. But, beloved, until that day, the people of God, the church, we continue to pursue being heaven's outpost on earth, and we stand against all forms of sin, even and especially racism. As we look at this morning's text, the, uh, the thrust and the big idea is that the church must fight against uh, must fight racism at every front because the truth of the gospel confronts the sinful hypocrisy of racism. The church must fight it, racism at every front because the truth of the gospel confronts the sinful hypocrisy of racism. Looking at Galatians 2, uh, some of the background is uh, Peter has come to fellowship with the First Baptist Church of uh, Antioch, where there are predominantly uh, Gentile Christians there, and the Gentile Christians begin to be treated as second-class Christians by the Jews who show up. 
See, originally Peter was hanging out and, and doing life with these Gentile believers, knowing that God has called them to, to unity, but, but, but some have come in, out-of-towners, to bring trouble and, and problems to God's church. And as they do, they bring a certain ideology with them, an ideology that would not, would not allow Jews to eat with Gentiles, even at this point, because they were considered unclean. But you know, there was even something deeper and something even more sinister to, uh, to these beliefs that they held. See, deep down, one scholar puts it this way, many Jews held to a belief that regarded Gentiles as different by nature. You hear that? Because they believe Gentile ancestors were not freed from evil impulse at Sinai as the Jews were. So, so they were holding to a belief that, that fundamentally the nature of Gentiles was different from their own nature. And because they held that belief, that, that allowed them to, to treat Gentiles as less than. Simply put, many Jews believe and saw Gentiles as inferior people. My, oh, my. Though the date is different, how things don't change. And as we approach this text, I want, I want us to be careful, and I want to be careful because I don't want to read back into the text uh, our uh, American understanding of of race and, and, and racism, uh, because here in the text, uh, this is more of an ethnic identity, uh, more of a, a, a cultural identity. Uh, what we have in America, our uh, hierarchy of race is more of a social construct that, that's been put in place to perpetuate oppression, to perpetuate a, a hierarchical class system that relegates blackness on the bottom and whiteness on the top. But as we look out over this, this, this nation, the one thing that God wants us to see in this text plainly is that racism is sin. See here in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Condemned. Peter, he's... He's guilty of something. Paul, Paul is saying uh, his actions or what he's doing, he, he stands condemned. He, he stands beca- uh, uh, condemned because he, he's gotten something wrong. And, 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 and when we look at the, the text of Scripture and how Jesus had been dealing with the disciples and all throughout the, the Old Testament, how God is choosing to use Israel to be a beacon of hope and light to the nations, we, we know that something is wrong. And, and beloved, uh, I want to point you to verse 6 because I believe this is part of the fundamental issue where he says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Why? Because God shows no partiality. I think that's just the issue. That is one of the issues right there. Uh, Peter was in sin because he was showing partiality. I think here, uh, Peter stands condemned to both the sins of commission and the sins of omission. He stands guilty of the sin of commission because he is 
uh, caught ran-handed uh, in the sin of partiality, treating someone different because of their appearance, because of what they look like, it, it, but something about th- them that's different than you, and you choose to treat them different. This is what uh, James discusses in chapter 2 of his letter. James, the second chapter, listen as I read verses 1 through 7. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing uh, comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is saying, you, you, you're going to all these lengths to condemn the poor man who comes in your midst, whereas the poor man is the one that God has the heart for. And on top of that, you're trying to impress the the rich man, but isn't the rich man the very one who has their hand on you, keeping you down? Peter is engaging in the sin of partiality, and God hates sin because he shows no distinctions. That's the sin of commission, but his sin of omission is his failure to love neighbor as himself. He is not, not being obedient to the commands of Jesus in loving neighbor. In Matthew 7, verse 12, Jesus says, So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is pointing to the great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. So, so, so even though we may sit back and say, but, but I didn't do nothing, I didn't say nothing, Jesus is saying, when you fail to do what I've called you to do, you are still in sin. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these, the commandments depend on the law and the prophets. Peter was in sin because he was not loving his neighbor like he should. And beloved, if we're honest, we have to call racism what it is. And racism is pure disobedience toward God because lawlessness is sin. So when we think about this sin uh, of racism, what, what we must ask ourselves is, what unbiblical distinctions do I make between myself and other people? What, what unbiblical d- distinctions do I make in my own heart? How, how am I culpable to this sin? Beloved, if we're honest, in the recesses of our heart, we, we do make distinctions and we do uh, 
find ourselves guilty of the sin of partiality. But not only does God say racism is sin, he says racism is rooted in fear. Look here in verse, in verse 12. He says, uh, well, why was Peter doing this? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So this circumcision party were, were, were those uh, religious Jews who were still holding on to a piece of the law, saying that in order for one to be acceptable, uh, accepted by God, they needed to have been circumcised. But, but all through the New Testament, we see that uh, uh, the distinction that God is making is not between those who are circumcised and not uncircumcised in their flesh, but between those who are circumcised or not circumcised in their hearts. So out of fear, Peter uh, sees them coming and he begins to separate himself from his good uh, Gentile friends. He, he begins to not want to be seen with them, not want to be uh, heard talking good about them. He, he finds himself in their groups begin, beginning to joke on them and talk about them like everyone else and distancing himself. He's afraid of their ridicule, of what they might say about him. He's afraid of, uh, of finding himself in a contentious situation by, by standing up for what he knows to be true. Ultimately, at this moment, Peter finds himself not wanting to be persecuted like everyone else. And beloved, when Peter falls into this sin of fear, what he really has fallen into is the sin of idolatry of self. Because he, he, he wants to preserve his name, his reputation, his comfort at all costs, and he's willing to sin to get it. This is an, uh, 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 antithetical to, to, to what Jesus is teaching in, in Philippians, the, the second chapter, verses 3 through 4. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition uh, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What Jesus is saying is not about you. It's not about uh, the moment or what people think about you or what they may say about you or how you even feel. Jesus says when you are his servant, you are sacrificial and you lay down your life so that others may live. This is how you fight the sinful idolatry of sin, by laying down your life. Racism seeks to please others. It's to make sure no one else talks about you or, or even worse yet, the idolatry of power. Because racism says, I'm keeping all my power and influence, even if it hurts you. This is what Peter is doing. He is bringing disunity because he wants to keep his power and his prestige. But God says this is sinful because racism is rooted in fear. And beloved, this morning, we, we must ask ourselves, how has fear driven you to consider yourself above others? Those moments when you know you should say something. Those moments where, where you can't just keep letting it go. Those moments where you come to the rescue of a coworker or another employee because what is taking place is wrong. But, but how many times have you allowed fear to drive you back? 
Racism is rooted in fear. But then thirdly, racism is simply hypocritical. It's hypocritical. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Beloved, we must understand the only way we can can designate racism as being hypocritical, the the only way that Paul can say they're acting hypocritically because he knows that racism is a gospel issue. Because it is, it is pressing against the truth of what God has already revealed to us. The, the, the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. The fact that we all come from one man, Adam. And that one man, uh, he, he, he found himself separated from the goodness of God because of his sin. Sin uh, fractured his, uh, his, his uh, relationships both vertically and horizontally because of his disobedience. And now that he's separated from God's goodness, he's liable to do anything. And, and the truth of the gospel reminds us that we are all sinners because of this one man. We are sinners because of Adam's sin, but most of all, we're sinners because of our own sin. And the gospel reminds us that we need a savior to rescue us from this sin. And that's, that rescue is found in the one man, Christ Jesus. That's the truth of the gospel. Through one man, we have salvation, Jesus Christ. We need to be mindful of this gospel truth. And Peter knows this. That's why he's hypocritical. If we look at Acts, a couple texts in Acts I want to point out right quick. In Acts, the 10th chapter, Jesus uh, brings forth a vision with Peter, and, and he begins to tell him what he should do concerning the Gentiles. So in Acts, the 10th chapter, uh, verses 25 through 28, It says, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up. I, too, am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Jump down with me over to verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have and have commanded and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. They, then they asked him to remain for some days. And finally, verse 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Those same folks who's criticizing him at Antioch were criticizing him here. This is why he's hypocritical. He, 
He says, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter explains to him. That because God has said these Gentiles are my people, what you call common or unclean, no, they're clean to God. And then in verse 18, it says, after he testifies, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Beloved, it is hypocritical because the same God who has saved them was the same God that saved the Gentiles. And Paul points to their uh, hypocrisy that it was so bad that even Barnabas, even the son of encouragement, even the one who came and got Paul to plant this church, even he fell for it. Racism is so easy to fall for because it had to become a system in their religion. And this, this is why today we have to be mindful that there is both a, a, a personalized racism of how, how, how you treat a person, how you think of a person, but more so racism is, is so pernicious because of the structural racism of how all of these systems, many systems have been put in place specifically to oppose and to oppress. Beloved, we must ask ourselves, where does hypocrisy live in my own heart? Do I really believe the truth of the gospel? Do I really believe what God has declared about an individual over what the world declares about an individual? Do I really believe that Grace is so amazing because in spite of everything I have done, God still chooses to value me. But yet we are so quick to dismantle someone and and bring disrepute upon their reputation to act as if it's okay to treat them like they were treated. Racism is hypocritical. That is hypocrisy. There's a double standard that is in place in our world. Where's the hypocrisy in your own heart? But lastly, verse 14, racism is to to be confronted because racism is not compatible with the gospel. Verse 14, Paul simply says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. He put them on blast. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, the, if, if the gospel is, is, is able to set you free from this legalistic religion and, and trying to conform to, to one identity, if, if the gospel is able to do that to you, then, then why are you trying to put them in a box? And, and, and to say that uh, they, they shouldn't be loved like Jews, they shouldn't be cared for like Jews, and they shouldn't be able to dine and, and, and experience this privileged position as Jews. If, 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 if the gospel has worked in your life so well, how dare you not return that same forbearance and forgiveness 
Paul immediately confronts this racism. Beloved, as the people of God, we have to confront racism in all its forms, no matter where we see it, how we see it. We may, we may see racism in, in racist jokes. We have to confront that. We, we, we may even have some, uh, as African Americans, some, some self-hate and, and, and some self-harm when we even talk about ourselves. Oh, they ghetto. Oh, good hair and bad hair. We have to confront that. We have to confront those generalizations that, uh, that people often make. Well, black people, well, white people, we have to confront those lies with the truth of the gospel. See, what's so dangerous about racism is the fact that it rejects the Imago Dei. That when we engage in this marginalization and oppression, we are engaging against an image bearer of Jesus Christ. So, beloved, as racism uh, uh, is to be confronted because it's not in line with the truth of the gospel, we must ask ourselves, how have I rejected the Imago Dei and failed to confront the sin of racism? How, How have you failed to confront the sin of racism? Beloved, there's a number of challenges for us in this text. Paul lays out, Uh, questions such as what unbiblical distinctions do you make between yourself and others? How has fear driven you to consider yourself above others? Where does hypocrisy live in your own heart? And how have you rejected the Imago Dei and failed to confront the sin of racism? Beloved, we have to deal with those issues internally. But then as a church, there are ways we can deal with these issues externally. And, and, and though these uh, suggestions are, are not comprehensive, uh, comprehensive and, and the solutions uh, that we need are, are, are very uh, nuanced and detailed and complex, but we still need to do something. And, and one of the things that God calls us to do is move out of that sin of omission, of merely saying, well, I'm not racist, and saying uh, what we aren't, and we need to take action and become something. We need to become anti-racist. We need to become the very individuals who don't just sit back and, and talk about what I'm not, but we need to become more of who God wants us to be, anti-racist. We need to educate ourselves both politically on just what's going on, what, what, what issues need, need to be addressed, what we need to do to understand the culture and the context and in, in which we're, we're, we're seeking to serve. But specifically, we need to educate ourselves biblically. Because if the gospel is going to be our framework from which we launch into action, then you, we got to know the Bible. And we got to know what God says about these things. Because God has said much about these things, and we can't glance over them because it's inconvenient. We educate ourselves both politically and biblically, but then also we press those in government to lead with a complete kingdom of heaven ethic, a kingdom ethic. So this is not an ethic that, uh, that submits itself to a party platform. This is an ethic that is 
biblical in its ideology, in the fact that God uh, has called us as his people to be generous, to be kind, to be mindful of the sojourn, the the widow, the, the fatherless, the orphan. God is calling us to engage. So when legislation comes that is contrary to this type of human flourishing, we have to stand and say no. Whether it's the Republican platform or the Democratic platform, we need to hold them accountable to a kingdom ethic of how God wants us to love him and to love neighbor. But then also we need to invest our time, our talents, and our treasure in order to bring about the change that God desires in this world. Educate yourself. Press those that leave to live out a kingdom ethic and invest your time, your talents, and your treasure. Beloved, racism is so dangerous because it applies a false performance-based value system to human flourishing. We see this, that human outcomes are so linked to your zip code and to your ethnicity. You know, a friend of mine, uh, he was quoting someone else, but I, and he was speaking about uh, just, uh, just systems. And I heard him say, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. And beloved, if we're honest and we look at the American system, it has been perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. And we as the people of God have to stand up because we know what God desires and we have to confront the sin of racism. And praise God that he doesn't have a performance-based value system. Because if that was the case, then we know that we're all failures, so we wouldn't be able to stand before God. Because of our imperfection, because of our sin. But praise be to God that there there is a hero, and his name is Jesus. And he performed perfectly, keeping the entire law. He was sinless in thought and deed. And because of his perfection, his sinless sacrifice, those who repent and trust in him can be made whole. Racists can be made whole. Thieves can be made whole. Liars can be made whole. Uh, No matter where you are, who you've been, you can be made whole through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ because of his perfect performance. Beloved, we simply need to repent, to turn from living how we want to live because God has shown us how we should live and we agree with him about how we should live and we believe that Jesus Christ is who he is. He accomplished what he said he accomplished and that through him we have salvation. So, beloved, as we consider what it means to fight racism, never forget that the church must fight racism at every front because the truth of the gospel confronts the sinful hypocrisy 
of racism. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the clarity at which you speak to us even in 2020. Father, your word is uh, true and is timeless, and you have a specific word for us today. Father, I pray that uh, we will be humbled as we uh, allow your word to flow over our hearts and show us ourselves like a brand new mirror. And Father, as you do, I pray that you would remove any type of prejudice, any type of partiality that we have because of this world system and that we would truly see people as saved or lost. But Father, also give us the courage as the people of God to confront the sinful hypocrisy of racism wherever we find it because you are the God of liberation. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, beloved, how will you respond to Jesus' words today? Will we obey 